Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. Hello. Here we are again. Tis us. Another month. Another lady. Yes. The enthusiasm is here this morning. It is. It is. And do you know what I have to say? I'm actually really excited. So I'm excited for this February. It's Black History Month. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to feature an awesome African-American lady. And I was so disappointed by how hard it was for me to find some and how little research there was. Yeah. That's changing. Um, but I'm really excited because I found a woman I had never heard of before whose writings I had never read. Mm-hmm. And I'm now a fan. That's the goal. That is the goal. I know. So I'm excited. This month, we're going to talk about Phyllis Wheatley. Woo! Have you heard about Phyllis Wheatley? No, I was just giving appropriate enthusiasm okay. for what I'm about no, to I'm, learn. Because I'm, it could just be my education was biased in a certain way and you had a slightly different one. And, you know, like, I'm just... It's possible. I'm, hope, no. I'm, I'm desperately hoping people are like, wow, you've never heard of her. And I'm going to be like, I know. I'm so <laughs> glad I have. And I'm, I'll, I'll be, you know, whatever ends up happening, obviously. I'll be happy mm-hmm. now if people listen to us and now they've heard of her. But she's a cool one. She's exciting. So... I'm taking you back. Mid 18th century. Here we are. Here we are. We're around 1753. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in West Africa. Mm-hmm. And this little girl, whose name is lost to history, was kidnapped mm-hmm. and brought over to Massachusetts at the time, a British colony. In uh, around 1761. So she's like, what's math? Six, seven, or eight. They're not entirely sure how old she was. They're saying she's around seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's brought over on a slave ship called the Phyllis. Okay. To the colony of Massachusetts in Boston. And a man named John Wheatley, who was a, a merchant, bought her as a slave for his wife, Susanna. Mm-hmm. And she was named after the ship that brought her to the state. So the, she was named Phyllis and was given Wheatley as her last name, which was very common. Uh, if, if enslaved peoples were to be given any last name, it was that of their master. I, it must be difficult to be reminded of a slave ship every single time someone addresses you. Yes. I, I imagine. I, was that also common practice? Um, it's the first time read of it. Yeah, that's so weird. It is weird. The one thing I will say about Phyllis that's been really interesting is what literature about her I've been reading is very fraught. Um, and we'll get into that. I think it's a really interesting, she's left a really interesting legacy that because of various 
things happening in history have been interpreted in different ways throughout history. So Mm -hmm. we're taking a bit of a, I'm going to say my favorite word, historiographical approach. Ooh. Yes. Do you want to quickly quickly tell our listeners what a historiographical approach is, Moral? Well, historiography is so awesome. <laughs> and historiography is the study of the study of history. Ah, we love that. We do. Oh, I'm I wish if you could see my face, I'm like glowing. I'm giddy. You can hear it. I can hear it in your voice. I feel okay. like this yeah. is like one of my favorite things. Um, to study in history, one of my favorite, like, foci. It is just, it's so interesting. And it's, you know, understanding. Studying studying how people studied history. Yes. But it's, what it's about is also understanding their understanding of Mm. their past. Mm -hmm. And it's so, I mean, God, it's so, it's endlessly fascinating to me. Um, and it's, it's a, uh, for the field of history, it's a newer field by that. I mean, I believe it was like mid 20th century. I was very lucky in school to have as my advisor, one of the great historiographers, Dr. Gabrielle Spiegel. Um, and you know, I was very lucky just to, that my instruction had a lot of uh, historiographical approaches in it. And mm-hmm. so I was lucky that that was where my interest uh, was able to focus. But so what's interesting about Phyllis, and I, I do want to talk about that is, um, you know, when when I'm talking about historiographical things, I'm not placing a judgment call on what I'm saying. I'm trying mm-hmm. to discuss the various influences. So that's mm-hmm. that's a little disclaimer I want to say is, you know, when we're discussing what people are writing about her, they're not our thoughts, but it's helping us have a greater understanding of where she sits in history, where her legacy um, continues, if mm-hmm. that makes any sense. Totally. Um, so, so... Very soon after Phyllis is sold into slavery to the Wheatley family, um, it becomes apparent that she's brilliant. It becomes, and I don't know how that happens. I don't, there are no records letting me know that, you know, how any of that happened. But um, the Wheatley had a daughter, Mary, who was like 18, and they had a Mm -hmm. son, Nathaniel, and they both just started tutoring Phyllis. And the family invested in her education. I mean, at a level that is kind of absurd. She was reading Greek and Latin. She was uh, interpreting Homer and Virgil and Alexander Pope and John Milton. And Mm -hmm. by the age of 12, she started writing her own poetry. That's badass. It's really freaking badass. That's that's what this podcast is for. I know. Historically badass broads. Here we go. badass. Love yes. it. And one of the things I will say that's really interesting, and this is how we will pepper in our historiographical knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. She, in her lifetime, was separated from the other slaves the Wheatley family owned to the point where she was, she didn't do any household labor, no domesticated hmm. work. She was entirely separated from her fellow Black people. Mm-hmm but she was still always a slave. Interesting. Yes. Did, I mean, was there a benefit to the Wheatleys that she was 
so intelligent? For was there like a monetary benefit? Were they selling her poems or what a what a brilliant woman you are, Chloe? Um, <laughs> so that's one that's one interpretation is that they start to see what this brilliant girl says about them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one approach. And because I don't know the Wheatleys. You don't know the Wheatleys. We don't know Phyllis. Um, sure don't. Yeah. We don't have writings first. You know, we don't have firsthand accounts from them mm-hmm. about these things. Mm-hmm. I can't really ever answer that. But what I can say is that's a that's a pretty standard line of thought about this. Is Absolutely. She was something to be showed off. Mm-hmm. She was this anomaly. And... It was a credit to the family she belonged to. Mm, That is not disputed. Right. I think what's interesting is she's, so she's indoctrinated with their religiosity. She is, becomes deeply religious. A lot of her writings, um, her poetry, she she is a poet. A lot of her writings are um, very religious in nature, but she also, you know, discusses various uh, classical themes and, and kind of continues, I think, you know, Ovid's Metamorphoses, she continues part of a translation that she conducted of it and finishes out a line of poetry about it, I think, or, you know, there are really interesting uh, allusions in her poetry, brilliant allusions in her poetry. I had to look Mm -hmm. up most of them, you know, it was really... (laughs) really exciting to see the level. Um, but a lot of religious um, overturns and, and, and a lot of, of Bible quotes. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so she's writing poetry and the Wheatleys are like, this is pretty solid. Um, and, you know, we're talking, we're talking 18th century. This is before the revolution kids. This is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're in the colonies and uh, she's in Boston. She's right in the center of it. And what's really interesting is, um, you know, she and the family are pretty well connected and she ends up getting to meet a lot of really cool people because of her writings and because of what she writes. Um, mm-hmm. This is when slavery was entirely allowed throughout all of the colonies, of course. And to say that her writings were not uh, well received in the colonies is, is I think, accurate. It, there was really no place for her in the literary marketplace in the colonies at the time. You know, no one cared or wanted to hear that an enslaved girl was writing poetry. And most of them didn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And so the family, Susanna, the mother, specifically said, I want her to go to London. They're going to have more... Um, you know, she's going to have more opportunity to publish there. And so in 1773, she and the son Nathaniel uh, go to London. They also, um, the one thing I will say is Phyllis, from the time she was born, seems to have been a fairly sickly person. She has asthma. She has, you know, other conditions. And this is before we have, you know, nebulizers and inhalers. So asthma is actually quite a serious condition. And of course, I'm sure she wasn't terribly well nourished throughout most of her life. Although she may have been, but I don't know. (laughs) We don't know enough. We don't know enough. That's, oh, 
don't know enough. I hate it. Um, we piece together what we can find, you know? Anywho, so we're in London. We are mm-hmm. 1773. Phyllis is maybe 20. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, I will say also because she's so sickly, it, it, it would be very difficult to really ascertain her age. Uh, Wait, why? Because she could have been for the beginning of her life, uh, not because of where she was, but because she was, I don't know, kidnapped and brought over on a, tr- a ship, mm. malnourished, um, and could have appeared younger than she was uh, due to her, any illnesses, chronic illnesses. Got it. That happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, who knows? They're saying around 20. Uh, I'll just say it was 1773. She gets to meet a lot of abolitionists in London. Um, She meets a lot of like evangelical minds. Um, She meets the man who becomes the Lord Mayor of London. And she makes Hmm. the acquaintance of a woman who becomes her benefactor, who's Selina Hastings, who's the Countess of Huntington. Hmm. Huntington? Huntington. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say Huntington. Sure. The question as if I as if I could confirm. Huntington. Huntington. No. Hunting Den. Sounds Oh. H U N T I N G D O N. Huntington. Is that Important right? Distinction. Uh, how would I know? You're smart. Yes. yes, it's correct. Thanks, Chloe. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> Just validation. That's all we're looking for. That's um, all it was. <laughs> So they become very interested in this, this, you know, young black girl who is writing beautiful poetry. And they're like, we're going to publish you. We're going to fund you. Um, so they do. Pretty cool. I know. So she ends up having uh, her first collection of poetry published. And um, I believe it was called uh, Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral. She was credited as Phyllis Wheatley, Negro servant to Mr. John Wheatley of Boston. That Sorry, that was her author's title? Yes. Okay. All I will say is I guess at least they put her name. Yeah. I mean, considering the women we've spoken of who haven't published their names, mm-hmm. because it's helpful to not be a woman who's publishing works, it Correct. is interesting that all of that information is listed. Like, thanks? You know, there's a question I, mark? I'm I'm wondering if it's more of a spectacle. You wouldn't be wrong. Right. You're, uh... <laughs> it doesn't feel like a positive thing. I was going to say, you, uh... You might be right. So, most colonists are like, there's no way. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, who's a real dick, um, says, like, um, I've read some of this, nothing special. Like who, you know, she's just talking about, like, it's all derivative. You know, she's that, he's that like horrible person who's just, you know, gonna take everyone down to make himself feel better. I get it. You know, compensation. Sure. Something must've been small in his life. Um, so interestingly enough, when they published this, um, a group of 17 men, from Boston. Of course. I'll say this was her. She actually wrote this. Oh, so, not what I thought you were going to say. Actually. I know it's not. So in the, but, but the way it's done is that it's a, how do I phrase it? 
it's uh, to confirm authorship. We witnessed this. I know, I know, it's hard to believe. But she did. And they signed an attestation, which was in the preface to her book. She had to have 17 men confirm that she wrote it and that was put in the book? Correct. So that when people read it, they go, ah, yes, 17 white men from Boston. I just assumed they were white. You're not 17 white men from Boston say this is a book. So Uh now you can read it. (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) Why am I surprised? I'm not surprised. It's just frustrating. (laughs) Okay. And the London magazine published as a specimen of her work, her poem, Hymn to the Morning, and said, Mm -hmm. and I quote, These poems display no astonishing works of genius, but when we consider them as productions of a young untutored African who wrote them after six months careful study of the English language, we cannot but suppress our admiration for talent so vigorous and lively. That's that's a backhanded compliment, if I've ever heard one. Isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that's like... Isn't it? That's like a a shard of glass in a cake. Mm. (laughs) I hate everyone sometimes. Um, (laughs) Just give her a Frickin' bone. Um, Oh, hold on. I found the Thomas Jefferson quote. Hmm. Misery is often the parent of the most affecting touches in poetry. Among the blacks is misery enough. You know you're a slave owner. God knows, but no poetry. That was my uh, editorialism. Love is the peculiar ostrum? Sure. Of the poet. Their love is ardent, but it kindles the senses only not the imagination. Religion indeed has produced a Phyllis Wheatley. Excuse me, he misspelled her name, Waitley. But it could not produce a poet. The compositions published under her name are below the dignity of criticism. Oh, okay. You know, have you ever heard the whole, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't, don't say, say anything it at, at all? all. Mm. Yeah. I love that he's like among the blacks is misery enough. I'm like, well, again... You're a fucking slave. Whose fault? Yeah, whose fault, fault, buddy? Who defended the institution of slavery? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You, sir. (laughs) So, So amongst all of this, Phyllis is in London and people are like either saying, well done you, lovely work. Or they're like, I guess it's good for a black person. And 
again, like the London magazine going for someone who only learned English six months ago, I guess this is fine. I'm like, no, really. Um, She writes so many really interesting poems. One of her most famous and the one that's most brought up is called On Being Brought from Africa to America. And what I want to, I'm going to read it out loud. It's very short, but I think what's really interesting about this poem is it, it shows her religiosity, the intensity of it. And we will end up discussing slightly that there's a lot of backlash against Phyllis Wheatley. Um, She was said to have been uh, suffering from uncle Tom syndrome uh, in by later people and that she was a a traitor to her own race. And we'll discuss that. But Mm. the last two lines, actually the last like four, so half of the poem to me says otherwise. So I'm being brought from Africa to America. Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a savior too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolical dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as cane, may be refined and join the angelic train. Hmm. And I think it says a lot. I think it says a lot about how she was raised in this white family. I think it mm-hmm. also says a lot about throughout all that she still says we're worthy of salvation and redemption. And remember, we are people. We must remember the position this person was in while writing these poems. We must. Absolutely. Because, you know, for her to even put that in is slightly rebellious. And in fact, some of her poems that have leanings like this were removed from publication because it upset British audiences. She has to be careful of who she's, whose minds she's trying to affect. Exactly. So we talked about the Mansfield ruling when we talked about Dido Elizabeth Bell. Mm -hmm. And people wrote, uh, there were a lot of English people who were supportive of that, who were really upset that this woman was still enslaved. And said, basically, you know, what is it? There's a quote, the people of Boston boast themselves chiefly on their principles of liberty, but that the purchase of her freedom would, in our opinion, have done them more honor than hanging a thousand trees with ribbons and emblems. Uh, And it's such an interesting period for her to be publishing work. Um, So she has an audience with King George III, but... um, Susanna Wheatley gets very ill and she returns back to Boston. And this is another example. uh, This is one of the things that's used to suggest that she suffered from uncle Tom syndrome. Wait, she has a, an audience scheduled and doesn't go because of the aunt or she, she does meet with the King. She does not. Okay. And she gets emancipated. uh, 1773. Susanna dies in 1774. John, the father, dies in 1778. And she's now a free woman. And uh, we know virtually nothing about her life at this point. Um, She meets a man named John Peters. He is a black grocer. He's free. They get married. Hmm. And all I could find was that they lived in poverty. Uh. He, according to some accounts, was uh, abandoned her, 
Um, he was in, at least we do know he was imprisoned for uh, debt. He was in a debtor's prison in 1784. She became a maid at a boarding house. Um, she had two or three children. Two of them died as babies. Um, mm. And at 1784, at the age of 31, she died and an infant son she had died soon after. That's what I know about the end of her life. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's always tragic. It's horrible. And I think what's interesting, so she was trying to, again, according to some accounts, she was trying to get her second volume of works published, but um, Mm -hmm. there wasn't an audience and uh, any, no publishers wanted to take it on. There's this book that comes out uh, purported to be a known biography of a memoir um, Mm -hmm. by a woman who claims to be a quote, collateral descendant of Susanna Wheatley. So she's a white lady publishing like 50 years after um, Phyllis dies. Sorry, what is a collateral descendant? I'm not actually sure. I think I looked it up and I didn't care. Um... (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. I think it's like someone who's like my father's uncle's second cousin. I feel like it's that. Okay. And for the purposes of this conversation... Uh, I'm going to go ahead and spoiler alert, this bitch ain't related at all. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it. No. Okay. No. Um, She colors so much of the narrative about Phyllis's life. I mean, she was seen, you know, her slave, her enslavement was seen as a gift. All the horrible things you would expect. She had a benevolent mistress. She, um... Her Yeah, so Phyllis doesn't seem to have wanted to publish. The poems are given to the world. Um, Oh, and what's the quote? Uh, The chains which bound her to her master and mistress were the golden links of love and the silken bands of gratitude. Ah! Okay, well, that needs to be burned in a fiery pit of hell. Wouldn't that as be fun to watch? As far as I'm concerned, I that couldn't agree. Is a heinous series of words. Yes. Uh, okay. After they die, she's left utterly desolate. She's vulnerable to this man who acted mm. out the gentleman, and mm. uh, you know, let's demonize black men apparently. And um, he—that's when we start hearing that he abandoned the children. And moved to the South. He didn't. Uh, Again, we do. The few records we have is that uh, he was in a debtor's prison and could have run for a senator as a as a senator in like the late 18th century. Um, Mm -hmm. This is where we start to understand. This is a woman in the mid 19th century talking about someone she's deciding she's related to. um, Or actually, excuse me, the slaver's family she's related to. And she's talking about, uh, you know, benevolent mistresses and the golden bonds of love, which are slavery. And, and it's, that's the understanding. That's the narrative that was shaping Phyllis's reputation for throughout her life or after Mm -hmm. her life, excuse me. And Mm -hmm. so for a long time, people were very upset about her. She was said to be against uh, kind of manumissions and, and, and there's nothing to support that. I think um, 
she commented on a lot of things that were happening in the world. She talks in one of the poems. I, I, this poem stuck with me so much. She, this is where, again, I say, you know, the only records I have of her voice that we have of her voice are some of her letters Mm -hmm. and her poems. And Mm -hmm. that's where we can find the truth in our attempt. We can attempt to find the truth in her sentiments and in her right. life, not in the, not in the discussion that I think is important to have, but around her life um, as shaped by other people. I think mm-hmm. all of these are important. We must talk about all of them. That's the historiographical side of it is let's understand why someone would feel compelled to shape her narrative that way. I think it could be as sinister as you might think that, you know, wanting to reduce the importance of a black woman's writings and make her entirely subjected to the kindness of white people. And that's the only reason she was doing that. We could go there. We could talk about, you know, so many other aspects of it. But this is when in moments like this, when I'm feeling slightly confused by the various narratives that I'm being that are being thrown at me and I'm told to believe you know, that they're asserting as truth. What I do is I go back and I try and find the primary records if they exist. And what we have are some of her letters and we have her poems. So that's where I believe we can find the closest thing to a interpretation of the truth of her life and her her own feelings about her life. So I do want to read this one part of a poem. Mm-hmm. She says, I young in life, by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Afric's happied, uh, fancied happy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breast. Steeled was that soul, and by no misery moved, that from a father seized his babe beloved. Such, such my case, and can I then but pray, others may never feel tyrannic sway. That doesn't seem like a golden bond of love to me. No. It doesn't. Not to me either. Do you know if that was one of the poems that was taken from publication? I have no doubt it was. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is she actually shaped our understanding of our own country. She's the first person to refer to America as Colombia. That's a fun fact. We have to remember as well, this is right at the kind of beginning of the genesis of the revolution and revolutionary thought. She mm-hmm. was terribly invested in the fight for freedom because she, from our understanding, perhaps, you know, believed it would, as many black people did at the time, that freedom for all was not just a blind promise for white people. Mm-hmm. She addressed many poems to a uh, poem to George Washington. She actually met him and um, they corresponded. Hmm. I think what's really interesting is there's another poem I would like to read that we start to see. It's in 1778. And it's, I think, you know, clearly at the beginning, she thought freedom for all was not a blind promise and Mm -hmm. an empty promise. And three years later, this is what she writes. But how presumptuous shall we hope to find divine acceptance with the almighty mind? While yet, O deed ungenerous, they disgrace and hold in bondage Afric's blameless race. Y'all are fighting for a freedom, and yet you're choosing to continue enslaving people. 
And again, I think, you know, this woman who, this white woman who decides to write about her life and talk about the golden chains of love that are slavery, um, colored so much of our interpretation of her. And thanks to newer scholarship being done, we now have a better understanding of, you know, the fact that our understanding of America's first published Black female poet, actually Black poet in general, I believe, what you know, our interpretation of her life was left to a to a, a white lady to do, mm-hmm. and I think that says so much. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, there's been thankfully more work done in the recent years to understand and have a better, uh, ad- <laughs> maybe not better, just any kind of uh, you know, interpretation of her life and. You know, yes, it, it's sad to see a life so short um, and blighted by so much tragedy. And her own personal life, I'm sure, was something I wish we could know more about. Um, fortunately, we can't. And we, what we do, what we are left with, though, is her work, are her mm-hmm. writings. And Voltaire said of her, you know, Voltaire. <laughs> wrote that uh, she proved black people could write poetry. Thanks, which is, again, what a backhanded compliment. But apparently she did. And George Washington wrote to her, and I quote, the style and manner of your poetry exhibit a striking proof of your great poetical talents. So she had such a complicated I mean, what a position to find yourself in. These people are holding you up as an example that Black people have a brain, and yet they're continuing to subjugate you. It's just, it's, I cannot imagine what her brain was saying, you know, and mm-hmm. and what her actual thoughts were. And I think it's a great tragedy that for so long, what we left, what we were left with were the, interp- what, was, what was an interpretation of her life is based on um, someone with a complete bias in the other direction. So I think I'm so, so thrilled to discover Phyllis Wheatley. I am so excited to read her poems and to read about this life that straddled so many worlds. I mean, I, again, I cannot imagine what it must have been like the things she had seen and I, I I hope it leads to some discussion about her and I hope people go out and read poems on various subjects. Um, Absolutely. And I think, you know, she's just, it's just exciting that we have records of her and, and mm-hmm. I was so sad and excited that I found someone in the 18th century who was a black woman do you know what I mean? Like, I was so yeah, surprised yeah. I could find one, but I was also like, yes. And it proved to me, you know, like, again, it just goes to show the bias that our own knowledge of our history is, you know, what it, what it takes and, and um, that there's a lot of scholarship that has yet to be accomplished uh, in this field. But I know there are a lot of really extraordinary historians who are working diligently to write um, some of those wrongs. So Phyllis Wheatley, what a badass. What a badass. Thank you for bringing her to us today.
I want to say like, you're welcome, but like a lot of other people alerted me to her. I, I was, you know, looking up a lot of things and I, mm-hmm. I finally found her and I, I'm like, it's not, I didn't discover her, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> it was, it was just exciting. And, you know, she accomplished so much for someone who supposedly died at 31, but she lives on so extraordinarily in her work. Which we can now read. Which we can read. <laughs> And we can ignore the page that 17 white men, you know, had to say, oh, yeah, she actually did write it. We can we can do what I did and skip past it. By the way, John Hancock was one of those men. How did he get on there? Because he was some Bostonite, I guess. I've never cared about men in history. I don't know if you guys have gathered that. Um, and, <laughs> that works out for this. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, ha- I uh, incidentally have read about them. But John Hancock is just kind of like, ah. Eh. But anywho, Phyllis Wheatley. <laughs> anywho. For anyone listening, we've done a little we've done a little digging into our stats, and there are a lot more listeners than we thought. So first of all, thank you for listening. Yeah. And if you'd like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do that, feel free to do that. Feel free to check us out on Instagram. We plan on posting a lot more at Historically Badass Broads. Just thank you so much for listening. We're so excited. And, you know, leave us comments and let us know uh, if there are amazing women that you'd like us to feature. And um, mm-hmm. you can email our, our Gmail. It's the same as our name. Historicallybadassbroads at gmail.com. And thank you so much again for listening. Thank you. We will see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.